one of the manifestations of our culture's move away from God is the rampant growth of violence. Not just in violence and protests and thefts, but even the violence, the vitriol that is ever-present in general society, on the road, in stores, in HOAs, in social news, in social and news media. This violence is not only practiced, it's even encouraged and subsidized by those who benefit from it or from those who have some kind of vision of a utopian society that can only be realized through the overthrow of the existing cultural norms and laws. It reminds us of the words of Noah when God said to him in Genesis 6, the earth is filled with violence. Tonight, as we return to Paul's letter to the Galatians, we'll examine the third <coughs> excuse me, category of sins, violence. Sinful violence, we are told in Scripture, is the natural outgrowth of the flesh, whether in the unregenerate believer or even in believers who, though freed from the domination of sin, still have remaining sin that is ever-present and ever-ready to express itself if we're not vigilant to live by the Spirit. Let's ask the Lord's blessing before we open the text. Father, once again we come to you needy. We depend upon your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to receive what we see in the Word tonight. So we pray for that humility to receive. We pray for the eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would be glorified, that we would be sanctified for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So remember where we are in the text. The book of Galatians is a letter written by Paul to churches in Galatia. That much is perhaps obvious, but so much more than that as well. Your Bible is the inspired and infallible word of God, a revelation of an absolute and personal God who is revealing to you the nature and patterns of the world that he has created. It reveals the sad truth of the rift between the creator and the creature that prevents them from fellowship with one another. But it also exposes the creature as in a position of rebellion against his creator such that an inevitable confrontation must occur, a confrontation that has eternal consequences. The Bible also is a revelation to teach us that there's nothing that we can do as creatures to address the problem between God and us. God and God alone can bridge the gap that's created by him, by us, and then he can fix that. He's the only one that can bridge the gap by taking on human flesh. He accomplished for us what we could not do ourselves. He lived a righteous life, and he paid the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross on our behalf. This is what Jesus, the God-man, did for his people. And we receive the benefits of his life and death when we accept his gift to us by believing and trusting in him. Nonetheless, human beings, since the fall, still want to think that they can do something to solve the problem. They think it is man who bridges the gap by trying to build up enough good deeds to overcome the deficit. But the Bible teaches that believing you can fix things, that you can fix things, this way is a lie. And the book of Galatians is specifically dealing with that issue. But another problem is that those, even those who have trusted in Christ, who are justified by faith before God and made his sons and daughters, still have remaining sin, known in the scriptures as the flesh. Though Christians are not under the dominion of sin, they nonetheless can sin and are called to turn from it to live in the spirit rather than in the flesh. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. 
These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. We're in the place in this letter now where Paul lists for us what life looks like when one chooses to live by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. Look again at these verses in uh, verses 19 through 21. We've noticed that these can be categorized into different types of sin. We might add other categories as well. We look at other categories in Scripture. But in this particular passage, we see the sins of immorality in verse 19, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. We see, secondly, sins of false religion and false worship in uh, verse uh, 520, idolatry and sorcery. We also see the sins of violence. Uh, of, in verses 20 and 21, quite a few of them here. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. And finally, uh, what are sometimes referred to as social sins, drunkenness and revelries. I actually prefer to think of these last sins as provocations or exacerbations to the previous sins. But we'll consider that when we teach on those next time. We're looking today at the third category of living by the flesh, that is, violence. Now, again, some commentators prefer to call this category relational sins, but I think you can just scan over them. You see that uh, my calling them sins of violence uh, fits the category pretty well. Let's take just a few moments and look what Paul is revealing to us here. There are quite a list uh, of these sins, and each one could probably be chased down to quite an extent, but I'm just going to give you a, a flyover of each one of these and what they mean. First is the word hatred. It's also translated enmities or alienation. It's a word used to describe a separation that results when people live in the flesh. You can see that same idea in several of these, the idea of separation. As a matter of fact, I just heard this week a story uh, of the epidemic of loneliness in the West. That shouldn't surprise us. Those who live in the flesh live to themselves. And if your agenda is not everyone else's agenda, then a natural rift will occur. The word's also used to refer to the alienation between God and man, or between man and man. Another word, contentions. The word is also translated strife, debate, quarrels, or wrangling. It describes someone who has a readiness to quarrel or an affection for disputing. Do you know people like that? Always ready to pounce on something, to stir the pot, or to rile people up. It's not a positive character quality. It's a sin. In fact, we see in scriptures that dealing, dealing with the sin in Proverbs, we're told in Proverbs 6.19 that God hates the one who sows discord among the brethren. Do you do this? Do you look for ways to stir people up? It says here that God hates those who do this. We're told in Titus 3, 10 to 11, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That's one of the jobs and responsibilities we have as elders, even as members of this church. If you know someone who is pushing some kind of uh, teaching contrary to what the church is teaching, call them out. Uh, That's divisive. It's not acceptable. Next, jealousies. What about jealousies? And while we're at it, we could add envy here as well, because a lot of times people use these two words interchangeably. They are related. The Greek word for jealousy here is the word zealous, where we get the word zealous. It comes from the word meaning heat. You might think here of the the word zeal that conjures up the idea or conveys the idea of a burning emotion, boiling over, red hot. It can be used negatively or positively. Obviously, in this context, it's used negatively. The word envy comes from a Greek word meaning grudge or spite. One lexicon describes it this way. 
quote, displeasure at another's good, without longing to raise oneself to the level of him who he envies, but only to depress the envied to his own level. Isn't that sad? What's the difference between jealousy and envy? One lexicon puts it this way. The difference between envy and jealousy is a fine one. Envy always has an outward focus. We desire some item or attribute possessed by someone else, and we are discontent or resentful about not having it. Jealousy is often found in a more restricted context of the protection of one's own items or relationships, especially romantic relationships. The next one in our list, outbursts of wrath. In modern parlance, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, some of you heard of that, that's the, the, un, the unbelievers, the, the psychiatric world and psychology world, they use the, the manuals, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual. They might call this an intermittent explosive order disorder or road rage. In the Greek, it means to rush along, breathe violently. It's sometimes translated rage, wrath, or indignation. The next word, selfish ambitions, describes people acting in their own self-interest despite, despite the discord that it causes. Dissensions is an interesting word. It's actually a compound word. Put two words together that mean separately standing. It's sometimes translated divisions. You see that same theme that seems to be flowing through so many of these. Heresies, this word comes from a very similar Greek word. It's sometimes translated sect, as in the sect of the Sadducees, describes division between people or groups due to different opinions or aims. Uh, And then finally, murder. Some Bible translations do not have this word, but we all understand what is meant by murder. We don't need to linger on that here. Now, isn't this just a lovely catalog of fun? Imagine what unbridled anger does to a home or a business, or even just to one person's heart. We noted earlier, this is not just a, this is just a sampling of the words that can be used in this category, but this is enough, even this, to ruin a family, a church, or a country. When we look at the passages of Scripture, we find that sinful violence takes little time to make its appearance on the world stage. In chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, we have the accretion account. Chapter 3, we have the fall of Adam and Eve, of Eve. And this unleashes two types of violence in the world, natural violence, violence in nature, and personal violence between people. In the natural world, we find hurricanes, tsunamis, tapeworms. I put that in there for the junior high boys. (laughs) Sickness, cancer, death. In the personal realm, we have what we are seeing Paul listing here in Galatians 5. We also see this again in in Genesis 4. Personal violence appears. The chapter opens with the narratives of the brutal murder of Abel by his brother Cain. It's rather shocking when you think about it. He killed his brother. Now, we kind of pass over that. But can you imagine that? I mean, picking up, they didn't have a gun. They had some kind of instrument, and he murdered his brother because his brother's offering was accepted and his wasn't. We tend to read past that in the same way we might do this in a war movie. If you've ever done this, I've sat in a war movie and I see bullets coming everywhere. And, and I, mean, I remember I did this in one movie that's famous just for all the bullets flying everywhere. And I remember eating popcorn, watching these, all these bodies dying on the thing. And I thought, something's wrong with this, this picture here. I'm sitting here eating popcorn while this happens. Well, we can read about Cain and Abel and like this and move on past it. But it's something we need to ponder. 
when we reflect on what's really happening, the whole scene becomes very disturbing. And, of course, it doesn't stop there. As we read through the pages of Scripture, we see acts of sinful violence that will give you nightmares if you ponder them for very long. Violence of men against men, men against women, women against women. Children get pulled into the vortex of the violence as well through war or even when pagan idols insist on children being thrown into the flame as sacrifices. Friends are betrayed by friends. Marriages are destroyed through cruelty and selfishness. Families are ripped apart by jealousy and bloodshed. Whole nations war against nations with countless bodies left in the field to rot while their families are destined to a life without a husband or a father in the home. Homes, buildings, cities that took dozens, perhaps more, hundreds of years or centuries to build are leveled to dust and rubble waiting to be built back, only to be leveled again. These are just a few in the, in the Bible. You can look at the 20th century now, our numbers up by about 150 million in the last century. Who died in war, prison camps, pogroms. Now, let's remember, not all acts of violence or anger are sinful. We know the Bible speaks of God's anger and his eventual war against sinful men. But that's not what we're concerned with this evening. We're talking about sinful anger here that leads to violence, such as the, the violence that we see or listed in Galatians 5. And we looked at the, the presence, the reality of violence, the history of violence, just very quickly in Scripture. But let's dig a little deeper now in our understanding of anger, because it's here that we'll find help in addressing anger in our own lives. I think probably one of the best passages of scriptures that helps us with understanding anger is in James 4. So I invite you to turn to James 4. We'll learn a couple of important lessons from James 4. Let me read the first seven verses here. and ask you to read silently uh, as I read this. Think about this in the context of what we're talking about this evening. Even in context, the broader context of the other sins we've talked about, of immorality and false religion. James 4, 1 through 7, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war that you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. <clears throat> that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, for he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'm going to make just a couple of observations here. First, look at the end of the passage and note that James names the source of the problem, pride. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. This is why Lewis described this as the great sin. When we go all the way down, it's about me. Second, I'd like to point here an important connection between these two topics of immorality and violence. The connection is that is the lust of the flesh. The thing that's common to both of these is the lust of the flesh. Personal desires run amok, desires that will express themselves in immorality and violence. And what do we see in history? We see these two are often connected. 
I want us to see that. It's an important connection. Perhaps the most obvious one is the abortion industry. What gives rise to all these children who are aborted? The vast majority of these children are conceived in immoral relationships. Immorality. But what do we do with all these unwanted children? Well, we kill them. We remove them. You see the connection? The lust that produces the children is the same lust that gives rise to wars and fighting and violence and the death of all these children. The lust of the flesh produced by human pride and autonomy. This is why attempts by any society to promote sexual promiscuity will always result in brutality and cruelty between the people, especially against the weak. I've seen debates even recently on the necessity of teaching comprehensive sex education in the schools. And I can't help thinking they're not just teaching immorality. They are inflaming the lust that's going to give rise to violence as well. Now think of that song by John Lennon, Imagine, where he talks to this kind of utopia where everybody's going around and it's all this free love and stuff. And I thought, that's not what the Bible teaches. If you've got this kind of immorality going on, you're also going to have violence. You can't avoid it. The two are connected by that lust that's common to both of them. We see immorality and violence also linked in other passages of Scripture. For example, Colossians 3, 5 through 8, another list of sins. Listen to these in light of what we've learned so far. Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Another helpful illustration is Sodom and Gomorrah. The lust of the men gave rise to the violence against Lot's visitors. Bottom line, unbridled lust produces both sexual immorality and violence. They are inseparably linked. How do we apply what we have seen here so far this morning? Let me give you several applications. First, I can't help but think that one of our first responses must be thankfulness. Though we still have remaining flesh and though we still live in a world of violence, it does not have to mark us out. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be our character because we're not under the dominion of sin and our flesh uh, does not have that kind of control over us that we are beholden to it. Whether it's a sin of immorality or violence, we are not in bondage to them. We're told in Romans 6 that sin no longer has dominion over us and for that we can rejoice and give God thanks. Turn with me over to Romans 6, where we can see this again demonstrated by the Apostle Paul. Romans 6, verses 17 through 22. <clears throat> we see Paul thanking God. Verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set, been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Paul begins that section with the word of thanks. And it reminds us of who we are and what we were 
and what we are now in light of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Second application, we're told in the seminary to reflect on the audience to whom we are preaching. That means that how I preach this sermon and apply the sermon to you might look different than how I would apply it to a group of inmates in a prison. And understand that most of you are not regularly immersed in violence. So you might think, well, this passage doesn't really remind us, not really me, it doesn't apply to me. I know other people it might apply to. But even if you don't act out the violence in extreme ways, most here would agree that there are times where you get sinfully angry. And so I'm talking to you now. What should we think about anger from a biblical perspective? Let me first make a distinction about two types of anger. We'll look at each one, one a little bit more fully and the one more, other one more briefly. I'm going to describe these as two types of anger. One is microwave anger. That's the kind of anger that heats up like that. And the second one is a crockpot anger. That's that low-level anger that just simmers for a long time. Let's look at each one of these. What does the Bible say about the microwave anger? <clears throat> In Proverbs 14, 17, we read, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Scripture clearly associates sudden outbursts of anger with foolishness. That association alone should give us pause before we open our mouths and express our anger. Now, Scripture identifies this type of anger, but it also gives counsel on how to deal with it. For example, we read in Proverbs 29.11, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Proverbs 17.28, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. We see in James 19, again going back to the book of James, but earlier in the book, verses 19 through 20, he, James writes, My beloved brethren, let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In both James and Proverbs, we learn that the, one of the first steps in dealing with anger is to keep your mouth closed. Second is to think through what is happening. Analyze the situation. Think about it biblically. It's not necessary to let everyone know that you're angry. You can choose to remain silent. You probably remember somebody in your life telling you that you should count to ten before you say something. Frankly, that's not bad advice. As as simple as that might seem, it's amazing how something as simple as that can help you be quiet. Don't create more problems by your words but give you that moment to reflect on what's happening and to respond to it biblically. You feel that burning inside? Your first inclination should not be to think, someone needs to hear what I am feeling. No, rather you should put a muzzle on, figuratively speaking, and it should compel you to think through, to analyze and respond biblically. How does analyzing our anger help? Well, we're told again in Proverbs 19.11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. His glory is to overlook a transgression. Using discretion means learning how to analyze our anger and what is giving rise to it. Now, we know from James that it begins in the heart with pride, and pride gives rise to lust and lust to anger. So before you open your mouth and say something you regret, stop. And think that this might very possibly be an expression of sin and foolishness that you will not be able to retract. 
think Ken Sandy is very helpful here in his book, Peacemaker. He breaks this down, the whole process, into four parts. I don't know if I've shared this from the pulpit before. Certainly I have in counseling and some of our uh, Sunday school classes. But let me remind you of his little paradigm here. I think it's helpful. He breaks this down into four parts. Desire, demand, judge, and punish. Desire, demand, judge, and punish. As human beings, we have desires. Desires can be sinful or not. But let's just say you have a desire that's not in and of itself sinful. But as you contemplate that desire and the desire grows within you, you begin to find that you are insisting on that desire being fulfilled. You begin to think that if you don't have that desire fulfilled, then you will not be happy. This is where sin creeps in to get a foothold. And then, and not just desiring that thing, it now demands it. That is, you begin to believe that you have a right to that thing, that desire fulfilled, needs to be filled, and you, uh, you demand that it be so. That thing you desire is now morphed into a type of idol. An idol is something that, in creation, we believe is necessary for our happiness. Let me give you an illustration of this and, and just kind of walk through the steps. Let's say, I'm going to take two names here, Cuthbert and Alvin. These are two names that I figured are not stepping on anybody's toes here. Alvin is a chipmunk, but he, I don't think he'll have a problem. <clears throat> so little Cuthbert is playing with a toy, and along comes Abner, or I'm sorry, Alvin, who asks to play with the toy. Cuthbert says, no, and by the way, kids, you notice I'm using an example of children, so perk up, listen, this applies to you as well. Cuthbert says, no, I'm playing with it, you can't have it. So Alvin's little sin nature engages, and he says, he puts on his little I will be his God button, it's, it's pushed, and he desire, his desire for the toy now becomes an idol, which because that toy is the only thing, because that toy is the only thing that can bring him happiness right now, and he demands to have it. So Alvin makes a snap judgment. Who is it that's keeping me from my idol? Cuthbert. The desire has morphed then into demand, and this has led to a judgment. Desire, demand, judge. We've gone through three steps. And here in Sandy's book is where he reminds us that idols demand sacrifices. So Alvin, having identified the source of the problem, Cuthbert, has to sacrifice Cuthbert to get his idol. So he punches him. The war begins. Desire has morphed into demand, I have to have it, to judgment and to punishment. It's just an example. It works with a toy. We're driving on a highway. When someone pulls out in front of you, you desire to drive unpeded. The desire morphs into that right that you have to drive without anyone hindering you. And you demand your rights. And so when someone pulls out in front of you, you judge him to be the problem, and you punish him by blasting on your horn. By the way, this tool, this handy tool, I think, can be reversed as well. For example, maybe you find that you are punishing your spouse by a silent treatment or even by biting words. You can use this paradigm to work backwards to the desire. Start with, okay, I'm punishing her. Why? Uh, well, I've judged her to be the problem. And why? Because I was demanding this. And was I, do I have a right to that? Or is it just a, a desire? And now have, I've turned it this way. So we can reverse that, and I think it's a helpful tool. <clears throat> well, it sounds easy, doesn't it? But for the fact that our pride is always wanting to justify itself. And that's where we can remind ourselves from James 4 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, we've learned how to analyze our anger. Let's do some more analysis. Let's return to the words of James. He says, yet you do not have because you do not ask. James writes that we often do not have what we desire because we neglect praying for it. You didn't ask the Lord for it. When you find your desire is unfulfilled, do you take the time 
to patiently pray and ask the Lord for that which you desire? Are you willing to entrust yourself to him and to patiently wait for an answer? Or do you have to have it right now or I won't be happy? Good book on that, by the way, is Jonah. Jonah chapter 4 has got a great section on that. Well, James goes on. He also cautions us to consider our motives. He writes, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here we go back to pride again. It's all about me. It's, and when it's all about me, I find that I'll never be satisfied. One of my favorite quotes from Matthew Henry is that God never made a human heart so small that all the world could fill it. You probably have to think about that one a little bit, but it's brilliant. He never made a human heart so small that all of the world could fill it. But if that's true, are we to be perpetually frustrated and angry? No, again, what does scripture teach us? It teaches us not to look at the things of the world, but rather to mature our desires. Set your sights far beyond the things of this world. David writes in Psalms 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. You see how you're directing your desires towards him, and then the desires come this way. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. We don't have to, by the way, we're not saying about denying our desires, but we are saying we have to mature them, to be directed to the one who can ultimately fulfill them. When we focus on aligning our priorities, we find that that anger begins to subside and a quiet thankfulness and a contentment fills our hearts. Well, we talked about the microwave anger. There's lots more that can be said. There's books written on these types of things. Let's talk for a moment about the crockpot anger. This is the kind of anger that is on the back burner. It's simmering anger, anger that is often described as bitterness. It's the kind of anger that's not on the surface, it's something that's deep down, it's hidden. It's an anger that will slowly rot a marriage. It's like uh, the termites in your house that are eating away at the foundation. You don't know what's happening until it collapses. It doesn't manifest itself outwardly, but it infects the heart and it burns away at it until it cannot be recovered. A helpful passage on this is Hebrews 12, 15, where the author warns the readers about any root of bitterness springing up caused trouble. And by this, many are defiled. The writer of the Hebrews is warning the readers of the root of bitterness that can cauterize a heart. I've seen this many times in counseling. I had one time where a woman came in. I said, well, what are the issues you have with your husband? And she brought out, I don't know, it was like 20 pages, dropped it on there. And I thought, oh, my word, you must be a joy to live with. I'd hate to think of what Christy could come up with if she made a list. Uh, but what is it, it tells us, uh, this, this idea that we can hold these grudges and this just festers in our heart. What does the author of Hebrews teach? Pursue peace with all people. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I've tried to control my temper, but that's just who I am. Let me leave you with a warning. Remember the words of Paul following the listing of the sins of the flesh in Galatians 5. He concludes by writing, Of which I tell you beforehand, this, these sins, just as I also told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, let's remember that the freedom purchased for us by Christ 
purchased with his life and blood is to save us from our sins, not just in eternity, but for now, to free us from the bondage of our anger or contempt or bitterness or envy. This is not a gift to squander. It's one to embrace as God conforms us to the image of Christ. Well, you might think, well, do we have any examples of someone who did this? I'm glad you asked that. And you know who I'm going to bring up is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask us to turn to a passage that's very familiar to us, 1 Peter 2, where we see Christ giving, demonstrating the very thing that we've talked about here in the last few minutes. And we'll conclude with his example. 1 Peter 2, verse 20. Peter writes, When you do good, and notice that says here, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body in the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. This passage, we're told that Jesus is our perfect example of how we should respond, even to unjust treatment against us. What did he do? Well, you notice it says he doesn't come unglued. He didn't open his mouth. Remember we said, keep your mouth closed. And what did he do? He committed himself to God who judges righteously. He thought through, what are the implications here? Why is this happening? What do I know to be true? And in light of that, he submitted to what God had for him and responded in joyful obedience. He remembers that God will bring all things to light. He will judge all injustice. So just remember that Jesus did this for us so that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. May God then be glorified in you. And in this church body, you strive to put off the sins of the flesh and put on the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder from Scripture. So often we can fall into these sins and become complacent in them, to forget about them, to treat them lightly. But we pray that you would impress upon us today the importance of this sanctifying work of your spirit to to, draw, to, to push these these sins away from us, to not express them, but rather to suppress them and to uh, rather uh, can be conformed and transformed into the image of excuse me <clears throat> the image of Christ so that he might be glorified that we might be sanctified that your people might know peace with one another and joyful community and mutual ministry we pray all this in the name of Christ amen